one of the uh, questions that our pastor has been looking at in recent weeks is what is it to become a Christian? How is it that we who are seeped in our rebellion against God, how we oppose the word of God and his truth, how can we come into a relationship with God? How is it that we can come to know the saving grace of God in our hearts? And it is that work of grace that brings us to repentance of sin and a trust in the saving work of Christ on the cross. Uh, So often today, we have a diluted gospel, which so often removes the concept of sin and the need of acknowledging that before God, we've broken his law. And part of what it is to become a Christian is to recognize our own rebellion against God and to see the need for repentance. And this evening, as we're going to look together at this passage in Genesis, we'll see something of what it is to be truly repentant. As the people listened to the Apostle Peter, as he preached that first Pentecost sermon, they were convicted of their sin, and we read in that sermon in Acts 2, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is at the very heart of what it is to become a Christian. What is repentance? Well, someone has put it like this. Biblical repentance is a change of heart and mind that turns from sin to the Saviour. It's a spiritual turning a total about-face that recognising that our sin is offensive to God and that we need his saving grace. We need to see that repentance is not just a mere form of words. It's an inward response of our heart. It's not an external activity, but its fruit will be evident in the true believer's behaviour. You can't truly be repentant of sin and not turn away from it. And our turning away from it means that we turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this evening, as God enables in our passage in Genesis that we're looking at this evening, we will see how the ten brothers of Joseph are brought to true repentance. Now, we've been following this story of Genesis, and uh, we've uh, seen over the Uh, The period, it's a couple of years now that we've been looking together at this in Sunday evenings, that the central theme is the line of Abraham, traced from Adam and Eve through their son Seth down to Noah and Abraham and on to Jacob and his family. This line is the promised seed that will eventually take us to King David and will culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been a line or a seed that's been fraught with trials. It hasn't been an easy ride, as it were. There have been disappointments. There have been failures. There's been sinfulness. But yet God is working out his purposes. And those purposes are seen as he brings about the completion of this line, this seed. It never falters. 
And we will see this evening, as we've already seen on other occasions, that this line now carries on down through Judah. It's interesting, as we've said before, that um, uh, the main emphasis in this part of the book of Genesis is on Joseph. And we see in Joseph something of a type of Christ. But the actual line that will come to Christ is that which comes through Judah. Now we've reached the stage in our narrative where Jacob and his 12 sons are in turmoil. Remember, out of jealousy, the 10 sons had sold Joseph into slavery. And we have seen that the providential events have taken this man Joseph to Egypt, where after trials and accusations, in times of imprisonment, Joseph has risen to be the prime minister of Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh in the whole nation. Through the dreams that God gave to Pharaoh, interpreted by Joseph, Egypt recognised that there was a coming famine. And the uh, dreams that came and interpreted by Joseph meant that preparation could be made. And uh, there were to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And that had come about. And now there was a great period of famine right across the nations. Jacob and his 11 brothers had been facing starvation and they had made an original journey to Egypt and they met, well, they met with the prime minister. They didn't know it was Joseph, of course, at that time. And Jacob had sent his 10 sons there to buy food. But his youngest son, his most precious son, Benjamin, kept at home. They wouldn't risk sending him, Jacob wouldn't risk sending him on such a journey. And when their boys there, these brothers, ten brothers, arrive in Egypt, they're welcomed by Joseph, but they do not recognise him. And they buy food, and they prepare, and they head back to Canaan. And so at this point, they find the money that they paid for the food was put back in their sacks. And as a result of that, a Simeon was imprisoned, and the remaining sons of Jacob are told that they must not return again to Egypt without bringing the youngest son, Benjamin, with them. Now, this was to be a further testing time for the sons of Jacob. Simon, Simeon rather, is being held in custody in Egypt. Had there been a real change in heart with these brothers? Did they still have that jealous hatred that they had previously shown to Joseph? But the time had come for a second journey to Egypt. The food they had in Canaan was now exhausted. They needed to buy further food. They didn't know how long this famine would continue. And as they return now to Egypt, the ten brothers, we find again that Judah takes the lead and how Joseph sets a test for the men. Jacob was very unhappy about the idea of his youngest son, Benjamin, going to Egypt with his brothers to secure food. But he is told that unless Benjamin goes, then they would not see uh, the prime minister of Egypt and therefore not be able to buy food. And we saw last time how Judah offers to act as surety or guarantee for his younger half-brother, should anything happen to him. And so... The brothers set off 
for Egypt. It had been a great day. The 11 brothers had been invited to dine with the Prime Minister of Egypt. We saw last time how uh, they'd been put on one table and they were amazed that uh, Joseph had put them in all correct order of age. How could that have been? Joseph sits on his own and the uh, uh, Egyptians sit on a further table because they would not sit on the same table uh, together. But it had been a good day. They'd had a good meal. They'd eaten and drank well. Simeon had been released. They had bought the food they needed. Their sacks were full. Their camels were loaded. Everything was ready for the next morning when they were planning to leave and head back to their father, Jacob. They were rejoicing that all had been accomplished. What they didn't know, of course, was that Joseph had one last test for these men before he would reveal to them who he was. Joseph sets a test for his brothers. Now, there's no doubt that Joseph loved his brothers truly, yet he was uncertain about them. He was uncertain about them, whether they had changed. They had been hateful, jealous brothers. Had they turned? Were they repentant? Were they different men now to those he'd known years ago? And Joseph had put them through a number of tests, and there were good signs of repentance among the brothers. But was it true? Was it genuine? Could they be trusted? Did they really love their father and his youngest son, Benjamin? And so a test is set. The brothers were given as much food as they could carry. The sacks packed full, their money returned to them again, but now something else happens. Joseph instructs his steward to put his special silver cup into Benjamin's sack. Uh, I would suggest this uh, silver cup was more than just a drinking vessel uh, that was used in the palace uh, of uh, Pharaoh. It was, as it were, a, a special cup, which was almost like a, a, a mark of position for the prime minister. The brothers must have felt really pleased with themselves that morning as they set off. Mission accomplished. Now they could go back to their father in Canaan and they could forget all about this rather haughty prime minister. But it was not to be so. They'd not gone far when the steward, acting on Joseph's orders, catches them up with a dreadful accusation. He accuses them of repaying good with evil by stealing this cup of the prime minister. Verses 4 and 5, When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and for which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Now, we've got a problem here, haven't we, of course? Did Joseph really use this cup for divination? It was a setup, of course, and I would suggest that the idea of saying that Joseph used this cup for divination was all part of the pretense of the scene. Um, I understand that such a practice was quite common in Egypt. You would mix water and oil together and you would swirl it round the vessel and you would look at the smears and the patterns and someone would be able to read those patterns and to predict the future. 
suppose a bit like reading tea leaves um, uh, that some claim to do the day. We cannot really think that Joseph would have been part of that, but yet it was all part of the scene that was being projected. And the brothers are astounded at this accusation. The brothers argued if they'd been dishonest, they wouldn't have brought the money back in the first place after they had found it in their sacks following their first trip. They're so convinced of their innocence that they promised the death sentence on the one who had stolen the cup, if it was true, and that all of them would become slaves to this prime minister of Egypt. But the steward said, no, only the guilty one of the theft will become a slave. Each man was quick to jump down and to see his sack opened, and you can imagine them opening it. There was the money in the top. There it's full of grain. There was no um, cup in Reuben's. There was no cup in Simeon's and in the others. And slowly they went down. And eventually they come to the youngest Benjamin and they open the sack. And there in the top is the cup. And they were grief stricken. They were despair. They tore their clothes. They couldn't allow Benjamin to go back to Egypt on his home. So all the brothers went with him. So what's happening here? Well, this I would suggest. The only way that Joseph could test the genuineness of the hearts of these brothers to see if it was true repentance was to put them under some extreme stress. And for them, nothing could have been more stressful for them to see their aged father's favourite son accused of stealing and facing a lifetime of slavery. Only when they were under such stress would Joseph know the hearts of these men. We always look at stress and the things of coming upon us in stressful situations as being hard. But they do come to God's people. For God does put his people under stressful situations at times. And they are a test sent from God. And it's a test to see whether our repentance is genuine, to see whether our faith is real, whether our trust in the Saviour's work is true. Those who've been through such stressful situations, and some of us have uh, come through situations over the last couple of years which we didn't expect, and it's forced us to face our reality of our relationship with God. Such tests with God are not that he might know our faith. It is not God saying, well, I need to find out if this man or this woman, they say they're Christians, if it's true or not. For surely he is sovereign. He knows the hearts of every person, whether they are a believer or not. But such tests are sent so that we might know our own hearts. We might see the reality of our own faith. Do I have true faith? Am I really trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what comes to me, what situation I face? It is, as one writer put it, it is being faithful under fire. Joseph had been through such tests himself, but now the brothers must be proven. And you know, I would suggest that many of us, finding perhaps it's the matter of getting older, that we come under such trials, that we've not known them before, 
We come under trials of illnesses and disabilities, of trials and struggles, all of which put our faith under test. We must be careful never to resent such things, for by providing them, they are the proving of our faith. And you know, the proving of our faith, that our repentance of sin and our trust in that finished and completed work of Christ is true, is the greatest comfort we can have. It's a comfort and preparation that we can be ready for all that we can experience for what lies ahead. We never know what tomorrow brings. We never know that situation uh, that lies ahead of us. It may be that we're going to have an easy situation, as it were, but it may be we're struggling to be struck down with an illness or some disability or a bereavement or a loss of income and things that come upon us. But by knowing that our faith in a holy, righteous, sovereign God who deals with us in love according to his providence brings us great comfort and great encouragement and it prepares us for that which lies ahead. It's Judah who's taking the lead amongst the brothers and we continue to see him doing so. It had been many years before that Judah had argued that Joseph should have been sold into slavery rather than left to die. But he was a man of double standards. But now the question that needed to be answered was he and these other brothers, were they changed men? Were they truly repentant of the actions that they had performed those years ago? And Joseph suggests that it was through divination that he found out who had been responsible for stealing the cup. All part of the scene. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, what deed is this you've done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? As I said, there's no reason to suppose that Joseph was really caught up in such magical acts. In any case, he had the cup put in Benjamin's sack in the first place. But the brothers knew they were innocent, but there was no way they could prove it. The evidence was stacked against them. Perhaps these brothers were beginning to realise that there was nothing they could hide from God. God exposes our hearts to ourselves, and that is something which is so needful. One of the brothers, Reuben, had previously said they were being punished because of earlier sins. In Genesis 42, we read, and Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But now Judah confesses their guilt before Joseph. Verse 16 of chapter 44. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. He's declaring that it's right that they should all become slaves to Joseph. And all the brothers agreed. And they weren't thinking just because the cup had been found in Benjamin's sack. It was because of how they had treated Joseph, how they'd been so jealous of their father's love towards him. 
how Joseph had had that coat of many colours and how they'd seen that as a mark of favour and they were just filled with hatred. They were guilty men and their own sin had found them out. And Joseph refuses and says, only Benjamin must stay. Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. What would the brother's reaction be? They could have gone off and abandoned Benjamin, as they'd done to Joseph those years earlier. Well, look at it this way. It would have meant they would have got rid of the other favourite son of Jacob. He wouldn't be able to put all his love and all his attention on the youngest. He'd have to share it over the remaining ten. That would have been a good way. How would they respond? For the brothers, the very person they had sought to destroy those years before is now the one who is exposing their sin. The stress and punishment they were experiencing came as a direct result of their own sin. Sin will find them out. God often works in that way. You know, we look at the world in which we live and there are many who seek to hide their sins. Uh, We can think of the horrors of men such as Jimmy Savile seek to get away with abuse over many years. He's now facing his own consequence before God. But often God works in our hearts and lives and in the situations in which we find ourselves to highlight our sin so that we become aware of it. Because awareness of our sin drives us to repentance. Satan and his followers attempt to destroy Jesus, the promised one. And they do so by hanging him on a cross. But yet it is the very death of the Messiah on that cross that will bring the eternal defeat of Satan and his gang. Of course, all this was in the predetermined will of God. Your hand, your purpose determined before to to be done. Satan meant the cross for evil but God meant it for good. Joseph was the means of inflicting trial and anguish on his brothers, but he would also be the means of their salvation from death by starvation. The death of the Messiah brings life to his people. Through the suffering of Christ, his people are made whole and restored to a proper relationship with God. And it's the recognition of our need to be forgiven of our sins. You know, as someone said, the gospel is good news. But unless we know the bad news, which is our sin and the wrath of God, which needs to be poured out upon that sin, unless we know the bad news, well, then how can we enjoy and go after the good news? The good news is that Christ came to deal with our sin. But if we reject the idea that we are full of sin, if we reject the idea that every part of our being, every aspect, our mind, our strength, our will, our emotions are all touched by sin, unless we come to the point that we repent of those before God, we never see our need of a saviour. 
And thirdly, this evening, we come to this passage, verses 18 to 34 of Genesis chapter 44, and someone said that this has most probably been one of the most powerful pleas in all of Scripture. This uncaring, heartless man had been subdued through all the experiences of the last few years. Judah is speaking on behalf of the brothers, and they are at one with him. They too are broken and repentant by recent events. And Judah intercedes for Benjamin. As Judah intercedes for him, he begins very respectfully before Joseph. He knows that Joseph has the full authority of Pharaoh, that he has power to do whatever he so desires. We read in verses 18 to 20, Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. He records to Joseph, you see, how his father Jacob had reluctantly given consent for Benjamin to accompany them to Egypt. Benjamin, the sole surviving son of the two born to his favourite wife, Rachel. And Judah pleads that, that if they were to return home without Benjamin, the shock would kill his father. Now therefore, uh, says Judah, when I come to your servant, my father, and the land is, lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So close is this relationship between Jacob and Benjamin. When we looked together the other week at chapter 43 of Genesis, we saw that Judah had offered himself as a surety, a guarantee for the safe return of Benjamin, verse 9 of chapter 43. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now prior to that, Reuben had offered his two sons. Chapter 42, verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him to you. But Reuben's offer was not enough. Judah offered himself in the place of Benjamin if anything was to happen to him. Such was now the love that he had for his father. And in the face now of having come before Joseph and all that is happening and the fact that Joseph is declaring that he will put Benjamin into a life of slavery, Judah seeks to make good the guarantee that he offered. It's one thing to make the offer. It's another to make that offer good. As we saw last time that in acting as surety or guarantee, uh, Judah uh, acted that he would stand in the place of Benjamin. And we saw how we had the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the believer's surety or guarantee. Jesus guarantees 
that every one of his people will be brought into God's kingdom. Their safety is assured as Jesus declares to God, and we have the words in Hebrews chapter 2, here am I and the children God has given me. The guarantee that Judah offered for looking after Benjamin was now being called uh, to be made good. In other words, Judah was saying, I will become your slave to Joseph. You see, the guarantee of Christ to be the believer's surety was called to be made good at Calvary. It wasn't just words. Action was needed. It wasn't just a case of Jesus saying in all his goodness that he would look after us. But he gives a guarantee and he seals that guarantee with his life on the cross before his father. The only way that Jesus could put into effect the promise he had made to bring God's believing people to heaven was to offer himself on the cross as their substitute for the consequences of their sin. And the guarantee or the surety was put into effect. Judah says, Now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. To effect that guarantee, Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin to be the substitute, to take the punishment of slavery on Benjamin's behalf so that he could return to his father. And we see here the gospel. We see that Jesus offered himself as the substitute for sinners such as you and I, bearing the punishment for our sins of God's people in self in their place. You see, scripture is clear. Sin must be dealt with. And that's why we need repentance. That's why we must have an understanding that our sin is an affront to God. For without that understanding, we will never see that sin has to be dealt with. And you know, there are only two ways that sin can be dealt with. It is that there are only two ways open to every person of the human race, not just the small few of us here this evening or online, but the whole of the population of Penzance, of Britain, of the whole world, now and before and until Christ returns. Either you take the punishment that is due to your own rebellion against God yourself and suffer its consequences, or you find a substitute someone who will stand in your place. And there's only one substitute that is acceptable to God. Reuben had said uh, to his father, look, you can have my two sons, put them to death if Benjamin doesn't come back. But that wasn't acceptable. It was only when Judah offered himself that that was acceptable to, I, to Jacob. There's only one substitute that's acceptable to God, and that is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, sacrifice after sacrifice was brought to God's altar, but none of these were acceptable as a substitute. No animal could take the place of a human being before God. The only acceptable substitute needed to be a man, and it had to be a man who was completely innocent of any sin of his own. Christ could not have been our substitute if he had gone to the cross for his own sin. But our Saviour was sinless. 
and therefore he was the man who was acceptable to God. The only man who God would accept was his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah offered himself for his brother. Jesus Christ, who is from the family line of Judah, offered himself as the perfect substitute in order to release his brothers from the slavery of sin and Satan. That's why we read in that passage in John's Gospel uh, when we read, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Judah and his brothers passed the test that day. And very soon, as we will read in the narrative, Joseph would make himself known to them. There was clearly no longer any jealousy or bad spirit in the brothers. The experiences they'd been through had brought them to confess their guilt of their past actions and to show a repentant attitude by their real concern for their father and brother. They'd last come to terms with the special affection that their father had for his wife Rachel and her two sons. Judah, the one who had callously suggested the idea of selling Joseph into Egypt as a slave, was now prepared to receive the punishment of slavery in the place of Rachel's son, rather than see his poor father die of a broken heart. And for the first time here, we see Judah directing us to the truth concerning the seed, the promised seed. The brother's repentance was true. The offering of one brother, Judah, to sacrifice himself for his brother Benjamin was a noble deed. But how much more then, when the holy and perfect King Lord Jesus sacrifices himself for the lowliest in the kingdom. And that's what our King Jesus has done for his people. Although we are undeserving, he came to earth to be a substitute for us. Although we deserve the death for our sins, Christ went to the cross in our place. And we will never know the reality of a true relationship with God unless the repentance we have for our sin against God is true. And if our repentance is true, it means that we have that about face. We turn and we turn from our sins and we turn to Christ. And God will grant to us the faith we need to trust Christ for his finished and completed work upon the cross. But it is only true repentance that will turn our hearts from sin to the Saviour and the promise of forgiveness. And therefore we must examine our own hearts this evening. Our prayer must be, Lord, show me my sin that I can truly repent of all that I've done before our holy God. And God will grant that repentance and he will grant the faith that you need to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It can sometimes be a very hard and a very difficult time. The recognition of our own sin is something which can really be stressful to us. But you know, when we realise that, and we realise the need of our Saviour, 
and that God has done everything we need, then we can rejoice that we have the salvation we need for that sin forgiven and that we are made free and free indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be a reality for each one of us here this evening and those who tune in online that they might know Christ for themselves and the fullness and completeness of his salvation for his name's sake. Amen.